Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you very much for being with us uh, this evening. My name's Charlie Jeffrey, Senior Vice Principal of uh, the University of Edinburgh, uh, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to uh, this year's Enlightenment Lecture. Uh, our Enlightenment Lectures are our senior public lecture, uh, and they're designed to give uh, a platform uh, to examine the Enlightenment's legacy in the context of our times. Uh, and this Enlightenment lecture is also part of our sixth annual series of our Changing World lectures. Now that series, um, now in its sixth incarnation, is both uh, a platform for distinguished academics and practitioners from within and beyond the university to discuss some of the global challenges that face our societies. Uh, and it's also uh, a very innovative uh, interdisciplinary course for our first-year undergraduate students, which introduces them to those global challenges uh, and the role that university research and teaching can play in a global context in helping to address those challenges. Uh, so I'm, I'm delighted to welcome tonight uh, members of the public, colleagues from the university and our students to uh, this lecture. Uh, I hope you can find the time beyond uh, the lecture to browse through the more than 50 Our Changing World lectures, which are available free to view uh, online. Uh, the, the Our Changing World series has been put together for some years now by our colleague Mayank uh, Dutia. Uh, in the School of Biomedical Sciences, uh, supported by our Global Academies, our Department of Sustainability and Social Responsibility, uh, and student volunteers from uh, our Students' Association. Many thanks to them all. Uh, it's a great honour to introduce uh, the speaker for this year's Our Changing World Enlightenment Lecture, Julia Martin-Lefebvre. Uh, Julia has led a distinguished uh, career in eminent positions of leadership uh, for many years. She stepped down as Director General of the International Union for Conservation of Nature uh, earlier this year, having served for eight years as the head of that organisation, which brings together governments, NGOs, scientists and experts to seek, I quote, uh, a just world that values and conserves nature. Uh, she was previously Rector of the UN-mandated University for Peace, Director of the Leadership for Environment and Development Programme at the Rockefeller Foundation, and Director of the International Council for Scientific Unions. Uh, in recognition of her work, she has received the prestigious AAAS Award for International Cooperation in Science, has been honoured as a Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur by the Government of France, and as a Chevalier Dans l'Ordre de Saint-Charles by Prince Albert Albert uh, of Monaco. Uh, she has many other awards, and I'm probably not going to go through them. Go through them all. I've got, I've got a, a long list here, but she she is extremely distinguished, uh, and it's great <laughs> great to have uh, her here. Uh, now, the timing of of this lecture and its subject matter couldn't be better uh, in the immediate run-up to the Paris Climate Change Conference, which starts next week but also in a year where our university community has been engaged in a passionate debate about how we, with our expertise and commitment in the university, uh, can best address the challenges of climate change. 
Uh, the lecture theme is The Promise of 2015, Hopes for a New Environmental Enlightenment, and it's my pleasure uh, to, uh, to welcome Julia to the university. Thank you Thank very, you very much. much. Thank you. It's really a great pleasure to be here, and thank you for letting me also walk around your beautiful city, which I had actually never done, which is really amazing. I, 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 I can't believe that I haven't done that. And when, you, when I hear you introducing my long career, I think, my goodness, I, I sound very old and gray, but I still have lots of energy, and I want to convince you, I'll tell you already, to help us change the world. So I have to confess that the title of this speech, The Enlightenment Lecture, was at first somewhat daunting. And then I recalled how the Enlightenment movement, I I actually had my first degree in, I couldn't decide, so I had my first degree in history and in biology. I couldn't decide, and I'm very glad I did that. So I did recall something about studying about the Enlightenment, and I recalled how the Enlightenment movement led to a new way of thinking about the world, freeing individuals from old habits and beliefs, and allowing for changed attitudes toward life led by science, philosophy, and a deeper understanding of nature. So that made me, gave me a little bit more courage to, to prepare this enlightenment lecture. So recalling some of the messages from nature that contributed to the enlightenment movement in Europe, it all makes sense, as the vice principal said, to give this lecture now. As we are, I believe, finally aware that we live in a world which just cannot continue on the same path. And if more direct messages are needed to come to such a conclusion, the increasing number of, let me see if this works, yes, the increasing number of messages from extreme weather events and and, uh, environmental disasters may help us understand, I hope, that our planet is being pushed by our own actions toward the brink of a breaking point. We're also coming to the end of a year during which we have heard many, many of these messages, which should now encourage meaningful action about the environment. And I want to stress this about all aspects of human survival. So while the analysis is bleak, the opportunities to act now in an enlightened and hopefully rapid manner are tremendous. So let me go back to the 18th century. 260 years and 23 days ago, on the morning of All Saints Day, the 1st of November, 1755, when most citizens of Lisbon were in church praying, all of a sudden a devastating earthquake followed by a powerful tsunami destroyed most of Lisbon. And this really is still looked at as one of the major earthquakes in our, in our, on our planet. And the tsunami and the the earthquake was felt as far away as North America, North Africa, and here in Scotland. So this enormous natural disaster is said to have directly influenced the Enlightenment and consequently led to a great deal of new thinking and scientific work. There were, of course, many who felt that that the disaster was a message from God and that this message had simply to be accepted. But those already a part of the Enlightenment movement strongly opposed these traditional explanations and argued for a new way of understanding and behaving toward the world. So I believe that we have a unique opportunity 
and indeed a responsibility to do that once again, urgently, and now. The German philosopher Immanuel Kant published three separate texts about the Lisbon earthquake and began to work seriously on the scientific explanation of why earthquakes happen as the first attempt to explain them by natural and not supernatural causes. I know that some of Kant's, if there are any seismologists here, I know that he wasn't exactly on the right track, but at least he was on that scientific track. Uh, 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 Jean-Jacques Rousseau argued that people should not live as closely together as they did in Lisbon and, um, and should pursue a more serene life closer to nature. Now, I don't think that this would work today when more than 50% of us live in cities, but I think Rousseau might have approved of our commitment to intelligent urban design. And remember that there are more than 50% of us now, but there will be about 75% by 2050. So... I am all for good, smart cities, too. But it's true that people did live very closely together in Lisbon. I should say that in going back to the Lisbon earthquake, I don't know if any, there are any historians here, but I found out that, in fact, most of the people praying in the churches were killed, and the only part of Lisbon which was spared, by chance, was the red light district. Is that true? <laughs> That's what I learned. <laughs> so the French writer... Philosopher Voltaire wrote a poem about the Lisbon earthquake, and in his novel Candide, also partly inspired by the event, he suggests a practical approach rather than the simplistic view of the day, which said that we live in the best of all possible worlds, uh, disasters included. By the way, I wanted to say after your introduction, merci pour votre accent magnifique, thank you for your beautiful French accent. So as I have spent most of my life in continental Europe, I hope that you don't mind my continental European examples, but I do know that the Scottish Enlightenment was a very, very important and rich part of your history, and I also know that this university uh, ha ha contributed a great deal uh, to thinking about a different way uh, of, first of all, rejecting any authority that could not be justified by reason. So... Inspired, inspired by the title of this lecture, I reflected upon our historic departure from the simple acceptance that wisdom must be handed on from, down from on high by the church, the, straight, the, the, the state, and, of course, the ruling classes. And that was a pretty brave departure from something that everybody was, was, was accepting. So the great Lisbon earthquake certainly encouraged reason rather than the blind acceptance of a message from the heavens. Today, we have to remember this. Accepted wisdom is also handed down by our definitions of economic growth driven by the GDP, the good life, the market, development, and our existing governance structures. So I believe that many of us would agree that we may be heading toward a new type of metaphorical earthquake, a disaster of globally intolerable impacts. If, however, and please don't think I'm going to give you a gloom and doom lecture, but that is the reality. If, however, we seize the opportunity to use our intellectual and our emo emotional capacities, we really do not need to wait for the disaster to strike. So this is my hope for the new Age of Enlightenment inspired by the title of this lecture that based on all that we know about the challenges of climate change, 
the loss of biodiversity, inequality, and poverty, we will not spend endless amount of time continuing to discuss these issues and for how to avoid the next disaster, but rather take an intelligent, long-term and proactive role about bringing about the changes which we know must happen. And I want to stress the word, the word long-term. Our systems are very short-term in nature. I don't know for how many years your politicians in Scotland hope to keep their positions, but they're in all parts of the world, it's way too short, and promises are made on short-term issues. And nobody is actually running for an office pr promising something that has to be kept 50 or 100 years from now. So the long-term is very important. The other thing that, I, that really is important to remember about the Enlightenment, that it also inspired thinkers to be in touch with each other, to share their ideas and discoveries, and to begin to form powerful networks, which really have been the cornerstone of scientific collaboration for ever since. And I, as you could hear from that brief uh, introduction, I've spent my whole life on international collaboration and on networks, and I think this is very important. And it's probably more important than ever now as we face today's complex challenges and move toward solutions, which I still hope will be in an enlightened manner that I believe we are capable of. So now, I know that you didn't invite me to give a lecture about the Enlightenment, but I was very inspired when I was invited to give this lecture. But I think we, can be, we should be proud of that era. And again, I think here in Scotland, you've got a lot to be proud of. And in fact, let me go back to Voltaire, and let's take inspiration from Candide's last, wor word in, last words in Voltaire's book, as he finally understands that we must cultivate our own garden and take responsibility for our actions. So, if the 18th century Enlightenment here in Scotland and in other parts of the world and in Europe put faith in the ability of human reason, today, when science has given us so many tools with which to understand our garden, or let's come back to the 21st century now, our planet Earth, which is our only home, which uh, I think cultivating is, it is complicated, but it's doable if we put our hearts and our minds to it. And I, and I don't, even though I've worked in science all my life, I don't mind saying that we need to put our hearts and minds on these things together. Well, you know this beautiful planet, our only home. So as I have spent most of my career working on scientific and environmental issues, I will focus on those in this lecture. I believe strongly, however, that these issues simply cannot be separated from the other challenges we face today. Wars, violence, terrorism, poverty, inequality, and so on. And as all of these have human causes, the solutions must come from us, hopefully capable of, an enlightened, of enlightened, enlightened decisions and actions. And in spite of the bad news in our media, this particular moment at the end of 2015, at the end of November 2015, gives us, I believe, a special and urgent opportunity to act intelligently and responsibly and rapidly. If we do so, this epoch, this very moment, may be recorded in history as a beginning of a new age of wisdom or enlightenment, and even more importantly, 
as a moment when decisions to take actions will guarantee life on Earth in a dignified manner for all of us and for generations to come. And I do want to stress all of us. There, there are seven and a half billion of us. And all of us deserve to live in a dignified manner. So although I am fully convinced that our present challenges concern all three strands of what is the, the, the definition of sustainability or sustainable development, the economic, the social, and the environmental. I think, um, a, a, I believe that it was in the interest of the environment which really started us on this path and where we are today. And the love of nature and the realization of its life support capacities that laid the groundwork for what I hope will be this powerful new movement. So we have been scientifically concerned about the Earth system for a very long time. A brief look at the environment and later the environment and development and then the sustainable development movements uh, reminds us of some extraordinary individuals as well as groups of individuals on whose shoulders we should proudly stand. So I'll start around the time when the world's population reached one billion simply to remind us that the planet would be just fine without all of us acting in a careless manner. So don't, don't forget that. And I hope no one here is, says at dinner parties, I'm in the business of saving the planet. The planet would be fine. What needs to be saved is ourselves, really, to be less careless. So in 1872, about the time when the planet uh, uh, reached one, when we reached one billion, Yellowstone National Park was established in the United States as the world's first formally protected area. Today, every country in the world has protected areas as a protected area system. There are more than 200,000 of such places around the planet, uh, around, covering around 15% of terrestrial and 3% of the marine domains. Not yet enough, but there is a determination to have many, many more. So I think this is important. John Muir, Muir, the respected 19th century Scottish-American environmental philosopher, also celebrated Yellowstone in one of his books uh, and did so much to preserve the wilderness of the United States. I'm not quite sure why he went to the United States. There must have been some kind of environmental reason. He was equally interested in human interventions to look after nature and founded the Sierra Club, which is still in existence today. Then, Aldo Leopold, born some 50 years after John Muir, was an American author and environmentalist who developed the ethical aspects of wilderness conservation. Henry David Thoreau, in an address in 1851, said that in wilderness is the preservation of the world. In 1862, John Ruskin, in his Unto This Last, worried about the effects of industrial expansion on human beings and on the natural world. Now remember, this was some time back and there weren't so many of us. But already, as I say there, we stood, we had these giants who were thinking about these things. Then President Theodore Roosevelt, in the early years of the 20th century, convened a North American Conservation Congress. And as we know, he also did an awful lot of other things for, in favor of nature. And I always have to remind my American friends that he was a Republican. So, so the term carrying capacity was first used in 1945 in a report to the US Senate. And I, I remind you of this because by that time, the world's population reached 
two and a half billion. And of course, here, is what, here are the projection, projections of what's going to happen as we move forward. And many people criticize the environmental movement for not talking about population. We need to talk about it, and I've put it as a background for my, my, my speech to you, and I hope that you'll, you'll ask me questions or give us ideas. So IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, which I had the great privilege to direct for a long time, was created in 1948, and as the vice principal said, it really had a very courageous architecture of putting governments and NGOs, non-governmental organizations, together in one organization. That seems like a no-brainer, but there are very, very few organizations that dare to do that. Many people used to say to me that I had the most complicated job in the in the international scene, maybe, but it was very important. IUCN's red list of threatened species has been at work for the past 51 years, providing a comprehensive source of information on the global conservation status of species. So the red list, as you probably know, makes for sobering reading, telling us that today that biodiversity is vanishing at rates not, not seen since the last mass extinction 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs disappeared. What we're witnessing today is species disappearing up to 1,000 times faster than the rate of natural extinction that we found in fossil records. And maybe among all the bad news in the newspapers today, maybe some of you saw that, the, that one of the remaining four, there were four up until last week, uh, northern white rhinos, died in the San Diego Zoo earlier this week. And the other three, I know the other three northern white rhinos are looked after very, very, very carefully in a place called Olpegeta, which is a very good conservancy in, in, um, in Kenya. But I'm afraid that those three will be the last of that particular species, unfortunately. So this is very, this is very sad. So IUCN has recently been pioneering a positive message, and I'm very proud to have contributed to that, getting away from the doom and gloom language of environmentalism and reminding us that nature brings us solutions to global problems, to many of the problems that we as individuals face, food, water, and health security, climate change, and our economic and social well-being. I mean, just think about how many poor people in the world depend directly on nature. They don't go to the supermarket to buy their milk or to buy their fish. In 1962, Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, calling for action among, uh, uh, against pesticides. And in 1965, Adelaide Stevenson used the metaphor spaceship Earth in a speech to the United Nations. So by the last quarter of the 20th century, we see that efforts are, were undertaken less by individuals and more through collaboration between groups of individuals and institutions. This certainly, I believe, builds on the legacy left by the environment that working together does bear its fruits. And, and, and this is, of course, what I built my career on. The first Earth Day was held in 1970 in the United States, which brought 20 million people to the streets celebrating the environment and warning against pollution. And this is now an act, something that happens all over the world every 22nd of April. That's a very nice cartoon by a famous, uh, that was in the New York Times, a famous American cartoonist whose name I've just forgotten, but this was Pogo. And of course he says, I don't know if you can read it, we have met the enemy and he's us. So he's also 
very wisely saying, this is us. The planet would be just fine. Um, and I think it's important to remember that that first Earth Day was a movement which led to positive results, which is what I'm hoping will happen not only after my speech, but it will happen as of, as of yesterday. Uh, the, the United States Environmental Protection Agency was established, and several legislative acts protecting water and air and endangered species came about immediately after this big movement on the street. So Barbara Walters, I'm still going through history because I think it's very important to understand what we've inherited, but our responsibility to move ahead, again, on the shoulder of these giants. Barbara Ward and René Dubot published Only One Earth in 1972, which was a very, very important year for the environment movement. And this was the same year that the Club of Rome brought out its limits to growth, and the world's governments met in Stockholm at the first UN conference on the human environment. And it's interesting to remember that that uh, conference had only two heads of state, the Prime Minister of Sweden, and I believe the King of Sweden, and the Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi. Only two came to that one. So in the 1981 publication uh, um, entitled The World Conservation Strategy, IUCN, with the help of UNEP and WWF, actually defined sustainable development, which was picked up and made much more prominent in the 1987 publication of Our Common Future, issued by the Brundtland Commission. Again, groups of people now, not just one, one person at a time. So the fact that sustainable development began to be looked at as having three pillars, and I always think pillars, it's a little bit awkward, because pillars just don't touch each other. And one of the challenges we are faced with is that we are in silos in university departments. Obviously, this particular lecture series is breaking out of the silos in government ministries and UN agencies and so on. So these were the three pillars. And I think it was an honest, an honest effort to try to unpack the complexity of the journey towards sustainability. And we're all on that journey. I don't know if any of us will see the end of it, but it's a very good journey for us to be on. But I think the fact that sustainable development was seen as these three pillars, economic, social, and environmental, has unfortunately led to more lack of collaboration and competition between the different different parts of society uh, trying to contribute to it. So I think we're now really getting away from this silo definition, which I think will help us make that journey more rapid, more collaborative, and hopefully more productive. So although the term sustainable development has now crept into our common vocabulary, everybody talks about sustainability, I still believe that we could give it a more user-friendly definition. And uh, for example, I've always liked one that was said, told to me some years ago, how about thinking about sustainable development as treating the earth as if we intended to stay? Let's think about that. I think that you're welcome to use that. So after the report of the Brundtland Commission, Our Common Future, 1987, a series of major international conferences and efforts to define sustainability and to make recommendations about the future followed. And this is just a, a partial list. So in 1988, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, was created. And I was at the International Council for Science when that happened. So I was very, 
very glad to be right there when that was going on. And of course, as you hopefully know, it has issued five assessment reports to date, showing a consensus among thousands of scientists on the current state of scientific knowledge about climate change. So the messages in these reports have been clear and strong that human influence has been the dominant cause of observed climate changes. I think we also need to remember that as we moved into the industrial era and started to use uh, uh, sources of energy that are now we know are causing climate change, we didn't know that. We didn't set up to say we're going to mess up the climate for future generations. But now that we do know, and that's my major message here, I think we, have, we do need to do something about it. So that was 1988, IPCC, five assessment reports. I should say here that it took the biodiversity community much longer to set up an IPCC-like mechanism. Perhaps the reason is that, uh, after all, biodiversity loss and gains, but mostly losses, is much more of a local issue. But this has finally happened in, in 2012 with the absolutely impossible acronym called IPBS, which stands for the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Ecosystem services is also a term that's used a lot by, by the scientific community. It's kind of a cold term. It really just demonstrates how everything about our lives depends on nature. And I'm just going to have a glass of water, actually to make that point, and also I need it. So in 1992, at the so-called Earth Summit, 108 nations were represented by their heads of state and government, so quite a lot more than in Stockholm. So you could see that it was already starting to be much more important. And the summit had several really good concrete outcomes, including a Rio Declaration, which stated that human beings are entitled to a healthy and productive life in harmony with nature. Agenda 21, the Statement of Forest Principles, and the three so-called Rio Conventions on Biodiversity, Desertification, and Climate. The important engagement in 1992, and I was there, uh, of non-state actors, NGOs, business groups, scientists, religious leaders, women's groups, indigenous people's organizations, uh, youth groups, also began in earnest in connection with that Rio conference. So since then, we have seen global meetings celebrating the 5th, the 10th, and the 20th anniversary after Rio. Frankly, these had less than clear outcomes I think demonstrating the weakness of global institutions to deal adequately with global problems. And I am not really complaining so much, but this is, I think, a reality, and I do think we need to address. So many, many people are talking about this now, and I think if we're going to come up with adequate solutions and a mechanism to help us take in timely and well-informed decisions, we're going to have to look at the architecture of the global institutions, many of which are well over 70 years old. So in addition to these big UN meetings, scientists and, and economists have been working increasingly together across borders and across disciplines. In 2005, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, an international synthesis with over a thousand very important scientists uh, came out with many, I think 15 or so uh, volumes, concluded 
that human activity is having a significant and escalating impact on biodiversity and on the world's ecosystems, reducing both, reducing both their resilience and their biocapacity. Now, if some of you, especially the students, are sitting here saying, but she's already said that. We've had so many of these reports, and that, I think, is very good, but it's also time for action. In 2006, we also received the very strong messages about the economic costs of inaction about climate change from the stern review of the economics of climate change. Then in 2008, I was very much involved in, and I still am involved in, a study which was sort of seen as a stern-like report, but now it has a life of its own, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity Study, which is really focusing on making nature's values visible. So TEEB continues, that's the acronym, TEEB continues to make important contributions to our understanding of the importance of recognizing the vast benefits offered by ecosystems and biodiversity. Now, there are people who say, well, how can you put a mon monetary value on nature? After all, it, it has an incredible spiritual value, and I'd be glad to talk about this with you, but these are just a few examples. So, and just to help us understand how important nature's solutions are to our well-being. So it's estimated that forests provide rural communities with direct livelihood benefits worth some $130 billion a year. A figure, and I think this is important, that e equates to the annual global official development assistance to the so-called develop developing world. At least, and this, this you have to remember too, at least a quarter of our modern medicines originate from tropical forest plants and are worth an estimated $108 billion a year. And just think about how short-sighted we are when we destroy forests, not to mention their role in capturing and storing carbon. We have been working now quite a bit lately, and this is a very positive move, on not accepting the fact that around our planet there are about 2 billion hectares, I don't know what that is in acres, that's a lot, 2 billion hectares of degraded land. So we're trying to be very realistic. And there is a, a, a big movement, for example, to restore 150 million hectares of degraded land by 2020. And not only would this be very nice, after all, but this would generate annual net benefits of more than $80 billion to local and national economies and also sequester about one gigaton of carbon per year. And if you think about the communities that live near and depend on degraded lands, you can imagine what a difference this would make in their lifetime. And of course, I know several of you are working on coral reefs. So healthy coral reefs, of course, we know, those of you who are working on coral reefs, that's obvious to you, provide coastal protection, tourism opportunities, and many other benefits to the tune of $172 billion a year. Now, this particular argument has a happy ending because just a year ago, the Australian government wasn't really taking good care of the World Heritage Site, the Great Barrier Reef. And it was this sort of argument which made them think again. And I think that that's on a better trajectory than it was a year ago. So there are many, many more examples of nature's value. The problem is, at the moment, that the benefits provided by nature largely go unnoticed and certainly not appearing on the balance sheets of companies 
or on national, in national GDP statistics. But the fact is that uh, this is now part of the discourse I think is very important and, in, and an encouraging step forward. And you'll hear more and more about, th more and more about this. And there was a, a meeting here in Edinburgh, which just finished this, this afternoon. There's a second world forum on natural capital, which is also looking at valuing nature properly. And I hope that if there's anybody in the audience who can tell us about its outcome, it would be very good. So in 2009, and updated in 2015, work on planetary boundaries was published by a group of Earth system scientists from all over the world. The headquarters is in Stockholm, but they, came from, they come from everywhere. So this is a framework to define what the authors of this very important work call a safe operating space for humanity. I think that's very important. This framework fits into the definition of the era we are now living in, which is informally called, as I hope you know, the Anthropocene, recognizing that human beings have become the largest single force of change on the Earth system. So the planetary uh, boundaries framework tells us that once human activities have passed certain thresholds, and you can see that there, but I would encourage you to go on that website. It's a very important study. Our, the thresholds are also called tipping points. So these are defining the boundaries. And then, th then there would be a risk of irreversible and abrupt environmental change. So in the very recent update of this work, nine processes and systems were identified as regulating the stability and the resilience of the Earth system, upon which, of course, I remind you again, we all depend. So the bad news is that it seems that as a result of the way we live in this Anthropocene, we have already crossed four of the nine defined boundaries. Obviously, climate change, loss of biosphere integrity, which is really about the ecosystems, land system change, and altered biogeochemical cycles, especially phosphorus and nitrogen. And then there is another study, the Global Footprint Network. So this is another, another group working on boundaries, which expresses this in the term of the global footprint. And I think actually quite a lot of people now use the term, you know, my environmental footprint, and you can even measure it. So you might have seen in recent reports uh, of this global footprint network that uh, on the 13th of August of this year, uh, we all reached Earth Overshoot Day, which means that humanity would, has gone beyond its biocapacity and, and its demand for ecological resources and services has exceeded what the Earth can give us. And in fact, we would need 1.6 Earth to satisfy our present lifestyles. And I think the word, the, the term lifestyles is also very interesting. So, you might say, well, why are all these studies? Actually, these two studies are very complementary, confirming careless use of natural resources uh, and limited resources. Uh, the footprint looks at resource security, and the planetary boundaries study looks at planetary health. And of course, it's very important now for me to remind you that at the time of these studies, our population has reached more than 7 billion, and it is, of course, progressing toward something like 10 billion by 2050. So I think these studies and these questions are very, very healthy. We're going to have to do something about them, though. Uh, so we have also 
heard, and I'm sorry about all those words there. I don't. We have also heard increasing calls to rethink our definition of growth. We have accepted for far too long that the only measure of growth is that of economic output of nations as reflected by the gross domestic product. And uh, although we know that this system does not account for social and environmental costs and benefits, but that is the system that we have. Now, I have to admit that the era of the GDP has been characterized by an important global rise in living standards everywhere, and this is very, very good news. But our economy has now grown at the expense of human and natural capital. So again, the good news is that this topic is now being discussed, and one hears increasingly about this, and encourage us to rethink our, and, and update the old measure of well-being to include, for example, happiness, as is done in Bhutan, the stewardship of the environment and natural resources, health, education, poverty, social justice, and so on. So I hope you're going to be, I hope you already are a part of this conversation. And as you can see, some of these people, several Nobel Prize winners, this is not just uh, people on the street. These are very important, very important people. So in addition to the need to fix our financial frameworks, we must also look at our existing legal frameworks concerned with the health of the planet. The three conventions adopted at the 1992 Rio conference are a part of a plethora of so-called multilateral environmental agreements, MEAs, the, the community loves um, acronyms. And these are legally binding agreements between three or more states. So you might be surprised to know that there are some 500 of these MEAs. And some of them are dealing with very regional or small topics, all very important, but it is an awful lot. And, uh, and, and one wonders, why shouldn't, shouldn't the world be in an absolute perfect state with all of these good people uh, working on these things, even from the legal point of view? So these are, the, these are the, the three Rio conventions. And they have been meeting at regular intervals in the so-called COPs. I wonder if any of you know, because in Paris, it's COP21. The COPs are the conferences of the parties. And these COPs are the supreme decision-making bodies of the conventions. Last week, I, I taught a course on international environmental governance at one of the best universities in Paris with an amazing group of international students. And they were all going to the COP, but not one of them knew what COP stood for. So I think <laughs> if we're going to use acronyms, I think we should know that. So the parties adhering to the Convention on Biological Diversity, which, by the way, was called for in 1981 by the members of IUCN and came into being at the Rio conference in 1992. So they decided to meet every two years, not every year. In 2010, in Nagoya, this was a very important meeting of the Conference of the Parties because the parties to the CBD, which is just about every country in the world except the United States, I'm embarrassed to say, the, the parties to the CBD made several important decisions in the face of really unprecedented loss of biodiversity. So among these was an, is an ambitious strategic plan on biodiversity between 2011 and 2020, uh, along with specific targets. There are 20 of these calling for specific action, including the fact that by 2020, 
every single citizen on the planet has to understand what biodiversity is and why it's important. And also, for example, another target which is aiming to increase significantly the protected area domain. And, and uh, we're on the way, but we still have a long ways to go, especially in the marine area. And, the, and then there was a very, very important lengthy negotiation for years, which led to a very important agreement on a Nagoya protocol on access to genetic resources and the fair and equitable sharing of benefits arising from their utilization. This is a very long title, and it took years of negotiation. But basically, if I come into your garden and I find a plant which is going to become a medicine, which is going to cure a disease, not only should I get the money from selling that medicine, but I should also be equitable about sharing the benefits in your garden or in your country. You can imagine how important this is. It's extremely complicated to put it into place. But it was a very, a very good moment. I was there at Nagoya, as I've been at many COPs, and quite often the decisions are made at 2 AM of the last morning. Um, so the, the, the discussions are complicated. The parties to the Desertification Convention, the UN Convention to Combat Desertification, it's the only one that has the title to combat, to do something about it. Um, uh, they met this year, they meet, also meet every two years, and they met this year in Turkey, only last month, and they adopted a land degradation neutrality target designed to ensure that land is resilient in face of climate change and is able to provide food, energy, water, biodiversity, livelihoods, and security. So you can see slowly these conventions are starting to build work together. The, the international system is such that after Rio, when the three conventions saw the light of day, and that took years of negotiations, then uh, uh, cities around the world all were competing with each other as to where these conventions should have their secretariats. If I had been in charge of the world, I would have insisted that they stay in the same place, and that isn't, isn't that what happened. That isn't what happened. Uh, now, COP21, the parties to the UN Framework Convention to, for Climate Change, that's its logo, UNFCC, decided from the outset to meet every year. So COP21 is the 21st year of, the, of this, these negotiations about the, most, the biggest challenge we have, and that is climate change, human-induced in, climate change. And so this will begin uh, on Monday, next Monday, in Paris, with the goal of achieving, for the first time in over 20 years of UN negotiations, a legally binding and universal agreement on climate from all the nations of the world. So many of us think that this 21st COP is the last chance to keep global warming from reaching dangerous levels. President Obama, in announcing his climate plan last summer, I think made a very clear and, and important statement when he said, we are the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. So the reality is, that there hasn't been very much collaboration between the different MEAs, multilateral environment agreements, or conventions, reminding us, again, that the scale of the global problems that we have today require adequate global institutions that at least have to talk to each other, and it's getting better. But let's get back to this year's final meeting. Coming from Paris, 
I can tell you that there are very few people on the streets of my city who don't know that there is a climate COP or COP Clima, as they say. That there are very few people who don't know that COP Clima is very important. Although I fear that very few understand quite why and what a positive or negative outcome will mean for their lives. Now, we all recognize, of course, that Parisians have many, many other things on their minds these days. But these issues, I believe, are really connected. And I'd love to talk to you more about that. So, the hope and expectation is that the negotiating document becomes universally and legally binding. And that is, I think, really important now. And that will lead us in the transition toward a resilient, low-carbon society and economy, and an economy. So the draft text starts out very well by recognizing, and now I quote, the intrinsic relationship between climate change, poverty eradication, and sustainable development, and emphasizes an action by all to respond to the ur urgent threat of climate change. These are beautiful words. They have to lead to action. The intention is to introduce deep cuts in global greenhouse gas emissions so as to hold the average global temperature rise below 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. So the good news is the impressive increase in the seriousness given to this matter. That's the reality of what we are facing. More than 160 countries, representing about 93% of, of carbon emissions in the world, have now submitted their post-2020 plans in documents with a, the impossible title, which was negotiated for weeks, I think, called Intended National Determined Contributions, and INDCs. Uh, these INDCs, which you can look up, and it's very transparent, the process. That's also good news. So you can look these up in various websites. And it was 160 countries a few hours ago. Maybe it's a few more. Remember, there are 193 members of the United Nations. So a couple of countries don't want to say what they're going to do. But all the important countries have said. And so these INDCs show that countries certainly have considerably increased their ambitions from their pre-2020 climate actions. So this is real progress, yet probably not adequate to meet the two-degree goal. In fact, um, today it looks as though if these INDCs are what the countries are really going to do, by 2020 we'll have a temperature increase of between 2.7 and 3.7 degrees. It's much better than it was a few months ago already, but there is so you have to watch this space next week and by the 11th of December, which is the last day of the climate, um, the COP, the Conference of the Parties. I think what's very important is that countries seem to be taking this very seriously. They are showing, they are showing progress. Of course, you've read in many of your newspaper articles, it's not enough. And I think the other thing that's going to be very important, and I hope you all will make sure the promises are kept. It's too easy to just say, this is what we're going to do, and then governments change. So this time, we really have to, it has to be in the public domain, and these promises have to be set. So they have to be kept. So the Paris Agreement, set to enter into force in just five years. We're not talking about the next 20 years anymore. Uh, I think the other good news is that this agreement, as in the text, it will pay attention 
both to mitigation, and that means it's the efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and to adaptation, which is just the practical steps that we will, climate change will happen and we will have to adapt. And this is good news because some of you may remember that in the beginning of the climate change discussions, we weren't allowed to talk about adaptation. It seemed as if we, if we would talk about adaptation, then we would, it would be considered as acknowledging defeat. And now the document is very honest. We're all going to have to adapt in the, in, to climate change because it's happening. So this increased focus on adaptation will, I believe, also help build bridges toward the biodiversity and the other conventions, recognizing, for example, the important role of natural ecosystems and what, they, what the role that they play in capturing and storing carbon and, of course, helping us adapt to climate change. So these are no longer unrelated issues. But that, that's going to be a real challenge for the education systems of the world, how to, how to build those bridges in our understanding. So the agreement, and then here is the last thing that's complicated, must also provide for a robust financial mechanism and investment flows so that all countries can actually achieve their objectives. So the agreement will need to demonstrate solidarity toward climate vulnerable countries. This is very important. It's no longer about pointing fingers, but we do need to help uh, help countries which are going to be much more vulnerable and which really weren't at the, the cause of, of where we are today. Again, I don't think anybody set out to ruin the world, but this is the situation. So I think it's very, very important for us to make sure that there is a robust financial understanding and agreement, and this is going to be the last tough issue negotiated. They do have 11 days to do it. So... Let's, le let's now return to the opportunity of a new age of enlightenment, which I still believe can happen. So I think you've seen enough, we have had enough clear messages, among which you surely know about the collapse of the cod fisheries in North America in the 1990s, the rapid melting of glaciers and the corresponding rising sea levels, and you read about that every day, the shrinking of important lakes in, on all continents, the unprecedented drought in Syria and in the neighboring in its neighboring countries starting in 2008. Just think about how that relates to issues which are not always presented in this way. The fact that 2014 was the warmest year in recorded history. The accelerated loss of biodiversity. You don't need to read the red list to know about that. And of course, increased social inequalities which, um, while at the same time, the growth of the middle classes is a very good thing, thing, but their lifestyle choices may no longer be, I mean, our lifestyle choices may longer, no longer be appropriate to any of us. And, of course, the other thing that you know about is a keen interest by some in keeping and growing an economy based on non-renewable resources. So I could go on and on about this, but the purpose of this list is certainly not to depress us, simply to remind us that we cannot postpone action any longer. So we now have the, I think, two possibilities. One is to react by shrugging our shoulders helplessly or accepting our responsibilities to drive transformational change in the way we think, 
we live and we act. And it's easier said than done, I realize it. Everybody is using this expression transformational change. And it's going to mean uh, a change in our lifestyles. So I think the scene for this transformational change has been set for us now by the end of 2015, by what science has told us, by endless negotiations at all levels of society, at international and local and national, and by commitments from businesses, civil society, and religious leaders. Now, talking about leadership, and everybody is saying, well, we don't have enough leaders. I'm not quite sure what the situation is in this part of the world. You can tell me. But uh, interestingly, of course, a prime example of leadership is Pope um, Francis's powerful encyclical letter issued in May. And then Pope Francis went to the United Nations, to the General Assembly meeting in September, and gave sound advice to the organization about the way it's structured, the organization celebrating its 70th anniversary, and repeated his strong message from the, his encyclical by reminding us that any harm done to the environment is done, harm done to huma humanity, and that we must leave behind today's culture of waste. So, amazing, it, I think surprised many of us, what a, what, what a brave leader he is. So, although uh, I think the Pope's presence in New York in September somewhat overshadowed the, uh, the importance of an, the adoption by all UN member states of the so-called Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And these represent a new commitment to take action addressing the root causes of poverty, of environmental, health, and educational degradation. All of this is a part of this so-called post-2015 development agenda in which these comprehensive and universal set of goals will drive action by all parts of society, not only by governments, but by everyone. So we were a little bit disappointed that there wasn't much there. It should have been fireworks and celebrations everywhere. Uh, so in a way, that was upstaged by the Pope's very good presence in New York. But, um, so there has been a lot of criticism on these SDGs, that there are too many of them with too many targets and not enough measurable indicators. They're also, I must say, seen to continue uh, encouraging growth as driven by GDP aspirations. One of the goals is pretty close to that. And they do not help us face the core problem of the economic model based on increasing uh, uh, consumption. So these are the words from this new post-2015 agenda. You can read it if you're interested. So again, I prefer to see the glass half full. These goals have been discussed and negotiated for years by really all parts of society. This time, it wasn't only governments. And, and the result is this new framework consisting, indeed, of this declaration of 17 goals of 169 uh, targets uh, and a section on means of implementation, etc. I think what is really new here is that these SDGs now apply to everyone, moving away from the traditional north-south divide and the often divisive conversations to, co uh, to concerted action about issues affecting really all of us. And I'm really hoping now that these sustainable development goals will help us get away from the language that we've been used to using for so long that there is a developed world and the so-called developing world, when I think there are overdeveloped and underdeveloped aspects to all parts of society. 
So each, each of these 17 goals were, uh, were negotiated by more than 190 members of the United Nations and resulting in a wording accepted by all of them. This may not be the best way to make decisions, but this is the system we have now. If you have the courage to get involved in changing it, it might be a, a good idea. So the goals, which are to produce results in just 15 years, address everyone on the planet, and after years of negotiations, really very little is left out. I think I was hoping we'd have fewer goals, but that's what we have, and, and I don't know whether you know about them, but here, here, are, here are all these goals, and they really address everything and everybody. What does not come out from all of this is that the aspirations from these goals to be linked together with the hope that in the, if the ambitions across the full extent of the, of the agenda are realized, the lives of present and future generations will be profoundly improved and our world will be transformed for the better. So hopefully this will end the cycle of setting goals and open again a new era of just action. Let's just get on and do it. Now let's not put it off and set another set of goals. Remember, we already had the Millennium Development Goals and goals and goals. Um, and I also hope that these goals will end the era of too much competition between different parts of the international system. Everybody wants to have a place in the sun and shine. And that we, that we now work together for the common good. I think we all have a responsibility to make this happen. So remember that on the morning of the 1st of November, 1755, those citizens of Lisbon had absolutely no warning about what was going to happen. We, on the other hand, are in a much better situation at the end of 2015, as we have been adequately warned of, warned of the challenges facing every living being on this planet, which is our only home. There is no plan B or planet B in this case. So I think it is now up to us to organize or join a meaningful movement to bring about the changes which many of us know need to happen. This movement could be the beginning of a new era of enlightenment in which we properly value and take care of nature, the life support system of all species, including us humans, we are part of those species, in which we decide to seriously take the no carbon pathway and in which we share the wealth of nature equally with our fellow citizens on this planet. So attempts to combine human with environmental well-being are starting to happen and should accelerate into a single indicator of what it means to have the quality of life that is acceptable on the individual human level for each of us and on the earth system level, again, as a support system for all of us. Societal transformation does not even need to be painful, as you have seen, for example, in the Nordic states. They emerged from World War II and built the most equal and even the happiest society, nations in the world, without violence or serious conflict. Their model of society leads the way with bike lanes and renewable energy efficiency, and they have the democratic consensual-based societies to help us move towards sustainable development. So I think it's very important for us not to say this is going to be a very uncomfortable phase in our, in our history, not at all. So let's not think of the, the, this new era as a sad and difficult one, nor should we imagine that we'll be going back to the discomfort of our, of, uh, of our ancestors. I think quite the contrary. 
We now can embrace growth, embrace growth in a different way. I think certainly not growth without limits, not even limits to growth, as the 1972 Club of Rome report said. But how about growth, but within limits? And I think this is doable. So to help us do this, the many technological breakthroughs which have already been invented should be put in place and support should be given to new thinking and new inventions. And I know that there are quite a few of those important ones in Scotland, which I hope are getting support. The movement should be firm about ending unsustainable practices, many of which are supported by subsidies. This has got to, this has got to stop. It should insist that the decisions taken about the sustainable development goals, climate, biodiversity, desertification, human rights, peace and security, all of these negotiations, should be implemented and not allowed to just gather dust on bureaucrats' bookshelves. So while it is good that different parts of society have been discussing these issues at an increased rate, it is now time for all citizens to enter this movement. It is encouraging to see, for example, how many people marched for climate in New York and in other cities last September when the General Assembly had its uh, climate meeting. And, uh, and, many, and, many, uh, and of course, next Sunday, not in Paris, but in other parts of the world, I hope here in Edinburgh. Uh, so, but I think we cannot stop with one-off demonstrations, which are also a lot of fun. You're with your friends, and it's important. But that's not enough. But it's encouraging. Many of you are university students. And history has shown us that students, and I was once one, and I was a part of a big set of demonstration that brought about political change. Uh, university students really have a role to play. I'm not calling for violent violence. We have enough of that. Uh, I think it's now your chance to enter into the global movement. Don't wait until you're in your 60s or 50s to enter uh, international organizations or national organizations which are talking about this path. So I think this movement should be a positive one, reconnecting humanity with its home our planet Earth, and its ability to support us, even 10 billion of us, if we take care of it. So this movement could be the beginning of an era which will be described in history books as an era of new reason, of enlightenment, and of positive change. So I hope I have convinced you that this is possible, that it could be enjoyable, and that it will result in changes that are called for. Uh, this is now a picture that I just put up here now because I took it a few days ago just to show you, and I don't expect you to sing the Marseillaise, but it is a beautiful picture of the Eiffel Tower. And you see there are lots of people in front of me taking pictures. So we are resilient. We are willing to be show dignity and to work together. We need to understand how related all of these issues are. But of course, we were incredibly sad in Paris, and we know how sad everybody was in the world, but we need to move on and look, look to the future with optimism. Thank you very much. Hi. Um, thank Hi. you very much. Um, I've just come from the World Forum on Natural Capital. Okay, um, good. Which, for anyone who's not aware of it, is a... Uh, a meeting of lots of international people, mainly businesses and policymakers, mm -hmm. to discuss natural capital, um, which is kind of the idea that um, natural capital is whatever uh, nature sort of gives to us for free mm -hmm. currently. Um, 
So there's lots of different people um, with different ideas about natural capital. If you were there, um, what would be your main message about natural capital? What do you think about it? Okay, please hold that uh, okay. microphone over there. Um, once again, thank you very much for a very informative speech. Um, I think like many people, having uh, watched uh, things over the last 30 years, and I remember reading The Limits to Growth when I was a teenager and it being incredibly inspiring, but also when you look back on it, you also feel in some ways sad that we haven't moved very far. Mm -hmm. um, there's an amazing opportunity now, as you've said, but if we were to take away one, let's say maybe two, maybe even three things that each one of us could practically do in our own lives to really make that change, what would you say those would be? Okay. Um, real practical things that we could do tonight, tomorrow. Okay. You. You've touched on in the talk the links between climate change and the threats to peace and security. And I was wondering, in the light of this, would you support um, our campaign to, for the university to divest fully from fossil fuels and from arms, mm -hmm. um, which we think is a very important mm -hmm. step to take in this environmental mm -hmm. enlightenment moving forward? Thank you very much. So first of all, I did go to the forum last year, and I was one of its organizers, and I couldn't make it this year. Actually, I have to say I loved walking around Edinburgh today. I, but but uh, I think simple messages understand that the solutions that nature offers is not only that we love it, but it offers practical solutions. And there isn't one business in the world that it doesn't depend on nature. They just hadn't thought about it. So uh, explain it in a, in a simple manner, which I know what they're, they're trying to do too, that there is valuing natural capital is not just something that tree huggers and bird lovers do. It's an absolute important part of our economies and of our well-being. And I think that's, that's a shorthand message. But I'd love to talk to you more about it. What is a practical thing that we should do? Run for office, for example. You know, I think... I think it's not, no good complaining about our leadership if we're not going to take a part of it. Get involved in your local decision-making uh, councils or whatever they're called here and, and, and have the courage to take, take leadership roles if you can. And those of you who are working on really more, imp certainly important scientific subjects at this university, please make sure that you're able to explain your science in a way that is perhaps not necessarily the language used in scientific journals, but that can communicate to people who will run for office if you're not going to do it. So I think influencing policy is extremely important. Yeah, I think universities like this one, I hope I'm not saying anything very offensive to you, Vice Principal, I think a great university like this university could invest in things that are not harmful to to the environment. So divestment, I think, is an interesting and it's a very positive campaign. What's being done now by international organizations and by leaders of the world, it seems not, it's not representative of what we normally consider as democratic principles. It isn't the result of participatory democracy and mm -hmm. the climate march that many of us might partake in. This is an example of direct democracy. But so how can we make it more participatory? How can we um, you know, force governments and, and, and heads of office to be more uh, proactive about this? So in this current time of much dispute, much terror in the world, uh, many attacks, what would you say is most important to keep this movement powerful enough to withstand the disputes and 
yeah, what would mm -hmm. you recommend? Mm -hmm. Is it sort of the community acting together what's mm -hmm. um, most important or what would you say mm -hmm. is most significant in this current time? Thank mm. you. Thank you very much for your lecture. I met recently with some friends with a member of parliament. He opened his remarks um, in response to um, our plea to not join the, um, the, the rabble uh, uh, responding to the latest atrocities in Paris by bombing more and mm -hmm. by taking a peace-building approach. Mm -hmm. He opened by saying, the UN is broken. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 these international mechanisms are broken. Mm -hmm. Can you comment? Okay. So let me start with, um, yeah, the participatory mo movement. I mean, I think things have really improved. I try to say that. In 1992 at the Rio conference was the first UN meeting where uh, really civil society was represented. The problem is that these things usually happen, this participatory stuff really happens in silos again. Uh, but there are opportunities now to do so. I think it's a little bit related to, I'm speaking about internationally, but this is also true locally and nationally. To come back to the UN system, I think the design born at a different era, right after the Second World War, this present UN system that we have, building on the League of Nations, was designed, first of all, a different world, but it was designed that governments are negotiating. And so in the UN negotiations, what you see if you go to Paris and others is that Governments are inside a room, and businesses are somewhere else, and scientists are somewhere else, and so on. What we're going to have to do is bring these issues together, really. And, and I think the UN system, I think a beautiful challenge for students' generation is to rethink, in a very nice way, redesign the system. It's 70 years old, and, it was, it, and I think we should do it in a very elegant way to say thank you for all that the system has done. However, it needs a different design. It was, it, it, it was created, look at who is in the Security Council. It's, it's a historic, it was a historic reality in 1946, but not, not necessarily today. So redesigning a system is very good. I was a part of a study which those of you who are interested in these issues called the Oxford Commission for Future Generations. And we had a chapter on sunset clauses for these institutions very elegantly evaluating them, how did, how did thank you for your great work, but perhaps this work is not needed in the years ahead. So I do think redesign would be important. There are more and more opportunities to participate, however. It's you know, not that easy and you're all busy and um, the days only have 24 hours, but I think I would really encourage that. And I would encourage uh, um, participating in a positive manner. Bring all your knowledge to the table and look for solutions rather than what the environment movement did for many years, gloom and doom and sadness. Well, the question about the links, which is why I, and I, I try to suggest it a little bit. I think these issues are all linked. Uh, there, there is no question, and now you could, there are more and more articles about that. I mentioned just very quickly that there was a very serious drought which started in Syria in 2008. And hundreds of thousands of farmers had nothing, nothing to eat, nothing to farm anymore. There was no water and so on. And so there was unrest. And that was the same in North Africa and in, in the Middle East. And it's going to happen more and more. 
So we do need to bring these issues together. Uh, I'm hoping that the governments represented inside a very secure place and in an airport near Paris next week will have opened their minds to the fact that these are issues that are related. That is the most difficult thing, and that is a challenge for universities. And this is why this particular series is so important, why I decided to accept your invitation, because you are trying to push these issues together. Well, thank you. We're very glad uh, that you did uh, accept our invitation. I think we've had a, a, a fantastic uh, evening. Um, and I, I've, I've taken lots from it. Um, don't wait for the disaster to strike. Uh, act. Um, but also, your, your starting point, and you came back to it at the end, freeing yourself from received wisdom and its limitations. That's what the Enlightenment was about in mm -hmm. the late 18th century. Mm -hmm. You're encouraging us to think uh, in that way now, thinking about the, the categories in which we understand how to run economies, uh, the categories within which we work, whether it's countries or, or disciplines, to move beyond that. And I found that very uh, inspirational. Uh, but most of all, I thought you brought us um, a tremendous richness of experience uh, from, from that uh, career uh, in, uh, in this, this field over, over some time. Uh, you brought us your ambition uh, to bring about transformational change. And you, you told us, I think quite rightly, that that's, that's a collective challenge. It's a responsibility mm. of all. Um, I think for all of those reasons, we've had a fantastic lecture this evening. So can I ask you to, to thank Julia uh, once again? Thank you.